evidence of alligators putting sticks on their snouts and swimming up to birds in nesting season. So the birds come down to get the sticks off their snouts and then they eat the birds. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. PortCityPythons.com. That was the calmest <laughs> welcome to I think you've ever done. That was yeah. weird. I'm so used to you yelling. I like. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy okay, about thanks. it. Okay, thanks. PortCityPythons.com. We, we have a couple animals available. We, we still have our blood red. We are Ooh. selling our blood red. We Yeah, we've decided to kind of slim down in some males that don't make any sense. And to be honest, we have a female that we're on the fence about. And she'll probably be breeding size next year. It's a creamsicle, so we don't mm-hmm. have any other to hybrids go to, to go with her. So it doesn't really make sense. But so if anyone's interested in that stuff, just hit us up. But males ready to breed, all that stuff. We've never actually done an, an ad through an actual animal. But porcipythons.com, there are shirts available. And thank you to our Patreon subs- Do you supporters. call those subscribers? Wow, supporters. supporters. Thank you, people, for supporting this podcast. And keeping us doing what we do every Monday-ish. Hey, it's on a Monday tonight, (laughs) so it worked out. That's good. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about a little bit the other night. Oh, my gosh. Saturday night. (laughs) We woke up at like 3 a.m. No, it was 3 a.m. You would know better than I do. But Dixie, who is our dog, she just started barking. And then whatever, we kind of went back to sleep and then we heard like something fall in it sounded like downstairs to me it sounded like in the back of the house or something was going on so after the second like i ignored it the first time i heard it and then the second time i heard it, i was like oh no something is going on and the, as soon as you went downstairs you noticed we had left the front door unlocked yeah <laughs> and that is when joe like, went into psycho mode like i have never seen him before I was. <laughs> I was very terrified. We were both convinced someone was in our house. He was opening and slamming every door, hitting on the door, saying, I know you're in here. Come out. Who's ever in this house? Come out right now. Well, I was doing like I was doing like hasty clears like you would do if you're clearing like a like a live shooter or something like that. Yeah, but I, but I had zero a live weapons. Shooter in our, yeah, and he was in his underwear, by the way. Let's <laughs> in my mind, I was kind of like this is a bad comparison. I was like Ed Norton in American History X, like in my underwear. You've never seen that? I don't know. What that yeah, besides is. the whole like he's a Nazi in that movie. <laughs> okay, that's a great I'm reference. half Jewish, guys. I can't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, not the part, not the important part of the story. But no. needless to say, we're freaking out. I'm mad at him because I'm sure our neighbors hate us at this point because he's just Oh, screaming. I don't it. This is a matter of life and death at this point. We thought it was. Yeah. He's screaming all around the house. We're, he's in the basement everywhere. And then. Because I swore that motherfucker's in the basement. And so then much. I was like, let me go check the snake room. Well, I checked the snake room, well, but you it was more it like a human's not going to hide within all the snakes. Like, So you didn't really was, check it. And then yeah. I go in there and check it. And what do I see? fucking Amel Buff had gotten out of its enclosure and was just knocking shit over left and right. 
yeah, it was just a male corn snake in breeding <laughs> mode and just some I, I like put the top on crooked and but even though his tub was under six others, there was a smallest, <laughs> smallest thing. He was still under six others. He still pushed his way out. Yep. And then he costs us and he's he's like three feet long, but he managed to push over half. And then knock over so much stuff in the room. Needless to say, if you are a reptile keeper and you think someone broke in your house at 3 a.m., maybe maybe check your snake room. That happened before, but it happened like when we were awake. So we weren't as, (laughs) like we should have known. We should have recognized that that happened because that's happened before. Well, I was just scared of you. (laughs) I I didn't know what to do. You didn't give me any sort of direction. So I think people, when they see me, they... They always expect me to be taller, but I'm like five seven and 170 pounds. So like, someone would have probably just kicked my ass if I found someone. Like, chances are they're probably bigger than me. But it it was worth a shot. I just wanted to show them that I was crazy, you know. And people don't want to fuck with a crazy person. Yeah, he, he <laughs> definitely seemed crazy. Okay, our guest is probably like, when the fuck are y'all gonna introduce me? Sorry, I've said that for twice now. That's bad. Yeah, we're I we're seeming really. Well, that was a very scary experience. We didn't go back to bed till like five thirty a.m. Oh yeah, I was like shaking. Yeah, for, like two hours. I was so mad. Still, I don't know why. But <laughs> all over a snake. But our guest today is wildlife biologist. He also uh, keeps in the private sector as well. It is Mike Yoret. Yoret. Oh, I did it better the second time. I've been practicing that for so long, guys. So, Mike, thank you so much for being here. And can you give us a little intro on what you do? Thanks for having me. Uh, so, like you said, I'm a wildlife biologist. Um, my main job is to basically follow around American crocodiles here in South Florida at uh, the nuclear power plant. Um, I monitor... I help monitor their population and do everything from prepare nesting areas uh, to monitoring actual nests um, to tagging and microchipping babies to adults, um, moving them out of, you know, dangerous situations, you know, and and working with everything else in South Florida, venomous snakes, alligators, caiman, all that stuff. Uh, So that's what really gets me going. I love that stuff. And I know that because... I used to live near a nuclear power plant and like the water runoff made the the water like a few degrees warmer and it would attract like all kinds of wildlife. Is that something similar that happens over there? <clears throat> so it's a common misconception actually for our situation. I can't really speak for other situations, uh, but everybody thinks the crocs come because of the warmer water. Uh, I think it's kind of just a supplement for our particular situation. I think it's because females come in for our, our raised berms, our raised uh, basically islands or nesting areas. Uh, with sea level rise the way it is, their historical nesting areas are washing out more and more. And we basically have these man-made elevated uh, strips of land. And the females come in to nest. The males, of course, come chasing the females. And the babies that are born there, you know, they have the option to grow up there or disperse out into, you know, Florida Bay and, and stuff like that. So what is basically is the power plant the thing that is it actually like in uh cahoots basically with conservation like um basically who do you work for like do you work for the power plant do they have an obligation to take care of the crocs so uh florida power and light is who owns the power plant 
power plant and they're big time environmental stewards. Uh, so their environmental stewardship is, is pretty big. We're in, we're in prime habitat for so many, so much South Florida wildlife right next to the Everglades and Biscayne national parks. Um, so we get all sorts of animals coming in and out and essentially it's really an incredible, incredible, incredible combination of people, you know, a, a huge industry that is power, you know, everyone in South Florida that has power is pretty much because of the nuclear power plant. Um, and you know, conserving the animals that are around there. And basically, the relationship between man and animal through conservation has proved itself out year after year at the power plant. So it's a pretty incredible situation. Here is this apex predator with whatever you want to call humans, you know, disastrous humans, right? And a lot of times humans don't want to be around an apex predator, but this place has really found the balance to make that work. So what exactly do you do on like a day-to-day basis? <laughs> so it's my favorite. No day is like any other day. Uh, I'm basically on call 24-7. Uh, so, you know, whether I had something prepared for that day, I could still get a call and say, hey, there's a crocodile at the intake of the power plant or, hey, there's an eastern diamondback rattlesnake at the construction area. Um, and I have to be able to react right away. Or, you know, I can get a call at 4 in the morning that, you know, uh, an eastern diamondback has, or, or a python or something has slithered into the plant. And basically, I'm the guy they call to go over there and remove it safely. Um, and then, depending on what it is, you know, it'll be relocated if it's a native. If it's invasive, it'll it'll be removed. So, obviously, you mentioned invasives. Uh, what kind of invasives uh, do you see around there? So, the main uh, animals, I should say, because there's tons of plants, too. You know, South Florida is kind of just loaded with a little bit of everything. Uh, but it's mainly the Burmese python, uh, the Argentine black and white tegu, and green iguanas. Uh, we also have some other smaller lizards that run around, red-headed gammas, um, Bahamian curly-tail lizards, um, all different types of insects, plants. Uh, and basically, FPNL has you know, put together a program where they try to mitigate uh, you know, and encourage native growth and native species and remove all invasives and what's typically like the relationship between those invasive species and the crocs are the crocs feeding on some of those um you know what it's it's really tough to catch that behavior your average joe i have to kind of explain this across the board when i speak to people about american crocs they're just shy like people don't get that they're extremely shy they want nothing to do with us um and there's only been one registered attack on humans and it was in an area where it's a heavily human populated area where, you know, people are fishing all the time. So the crocs are used to people and the people were swimming at night. Even with that, the croc bit the person, realized it wasn't prey and swam off. So crocs, the American croc, we have to be specific, right? American crocs really want nothing to do with us. You know, if we follow common sense, we don't let our dogs walk along the waterways. You know, we don't let small children walk along the waterways where we know there's crocodilians present. There's really no issue. We, we can live in harmony with these creatures, no problem. And I've seen, obviously, on Instagram, a bunch of pictures of you going hands-on, I mean, in all life stages as far as the crocs go. I mean, how do you even go about, like, trapping an animal like that? Uh, every situation presents its own challenges. Um, so there's been some real unique ones there's no manual for this and that's what i always tell people you know you got to be able to think on your toes you have to be creative 
you have to be handy. You have to be able to make tools on the go. You know, it's a combination of knowing the animal's behavior and knowing what's going on around you. Um, and you just got to make it happen. That's it. You can't shy away from it. You know, the animal depends on you. The people depend on you. The people need to basically keep the operation going. You, you can't lose money. And you also need to protect the animal. So really unique situation. So a question we probably should have asked first, and I want to start asking us first again. We used to. How did you get into this field? So animals have always been my passion. Uh, I'm lucky. I grew up in South Florida. You know, I was a little kid. What's that? Yeah, that's right. I was a little kid, you know, jumping on six-foot green iguanas, you know, as long as I can remember, catching snakes, catching gators, catching all that stuff. Um, and I always knew that I was going to be working with animals. Um, never in a million years that I think I was going to be a biologist at a nuclear power plant tagging American crocodiles. I mean, I don't think anyone could really put that together. <laughs> Most people don't even know that exists as like an option. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but you know, I kind of bounced around just like most animal people do. I, I always kept, you know, a big collection cause I was always fascinated by these creatures. Um, and then, you know, at first it was just personal interest and then I got, you know, kind of better at it and learned a lot more about it and wanted to make it more conservation based and basically just try to kind of, Stick my nose anywhere where I, where I can help is really how I feel. You know, I want to be a part of any way that we can help wildlife. And, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it always starts in your own backyard. To be a part of a conservation effort in my own backyard, per se, means so much to me. You know, I think there's a lot of focus on, you know, let's help, Afri- you know, uh, African animals, rhinos, and all the megafauna. And that's great. I think that's fantastic and definitely needs to happen. But how do you really make an example, a good example, set a good example? That's, you know, protecting what's in your own backyard. So, oh, you got a question? No, go ahead. Um, so we've had a lot of people who kind of do some conservation work. And I've always wondered, do you feel like you've learned more for, um, for this career path in the field than in school? I always feel like, you know, obviously school and college it's a great choice and you can go to be a biology major and everything. But then when I talk to these people and hearing your stories, it seems like you learn so much more just being out there. I feel there. like catching a croc wouldn't be in a textbook. Well, anywhere. But there's obviously, you know, obviously there's, there's some bear. Yeah, yeah. I just want to know like, you know, what the balance between what you've learned out in the field versus what you learned in school. I mean, what you said is spot on. Uh, there's no, there's, like I said before, there's, there's no manual for this. So essentially you go to college, you know, you get the basic education and, and, and that's all great. And, you know, I, I loved going to school. Um, I wouldn't really say I was the best student. That wasn't really my thing. You know, I was fascinated by animals, sports, you know, maybe some other things too. But, <laughs> you know, it, it all came from personal interest. You get this background from college, from school that you know you can't replace with anything there's stuff that i still remember but bottom line i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing if it wasn't for my own personal interest uh so it it really is passion driven as we know working with animals is all passion driven um you know very rarely do you find somebody that works with animals just because they they want to work with animals because they love animals to some extent or maybe they just hate people that much and i see that too but, but it's just 
it's a passion driven hobby and then career if you want to if you want to take it that far do you feel like work in the private sector i mean just private keeping and stuff like that does that give you a leg up at all uh in regard a leg up where either from do people merit that hands-on experience it's funny uh that you asked that because i think there's two sides to that i think the people that live that private life and that captive life understand it completely and then the people that you know Sometimes there's people that have learned more, let's say from books, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, they haven't really experienced the captive side. You know, we, we have extremists with animals everywhere. Some people, you know, they don't want you to have a lizard in a tank. But what I always say is if it wasn't for me having captive animals, there's no way I'd be where I am today. If I didn't have that baby green iguana, if I didn't have that bearded dragon, if I didn't have that red-footed tortoise, that box turtle, to really capture my interest when I was a kid to, uh, you know, push me to learn more about the animal, then I, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. And unfortunately, the way things are in the world now, you know, everything's getting developed. Being in touch with nature isn't as easy as it once was. And, you know, for, you know, a big city kid, you know, in the middle of the city, he may not be able to get in touch with nature. His only opportunity for that, his or her opportunity for that is, you know, having a pet in an aquarium, a, a fish in a tank. Um, and you never know what that can turn into, that fascination from that first pet. You know, I still remember my first pet. I still have my first pet turtle. Still have it to this day. Yeah. How old is he? She is, she's got to be around 23 years old. Damn. Yeah. So I, I caught her in a canal, a little uh, red belly slider this big, and she produces babies every year. I hatch out her babies, and it's cool. I love telling that story, and, you know, it, it's easy to show how much you care when you kind of have a story like that, you know? I love her. She's a native species here that, you know, isn't the most valuable in the world, but I think she's the coolest turtle ever, and me and her have been through some stuff, you know? I mean, 23, <laughs> year, 23 yeah. years, of, yeah, you guys got a lot together. Mad love for her. Mad love for her. So, so obviously you started with a turtle. You have a Fly River turtle shirt on. So um, was your first interest in turtles and you went from there? I wouldn't say my first interest was turtles. I think my first interest was everything. I was the kid running around school picking up bugs in the sandbox and putting lizards on my ears. Uh, That's a Florida thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you, you throw some anoles on your ears and, you know, you run up to the girls and see what they think and they scream running away. And But, yeah, I was that kid, so it always caught my interest. Um, but what really accelerated that was, again, I got put in a perfect situation. I'm born down here in South Florida. Uh, I have a crazy Cuban grandfather, you know, my abuelo, and he's the first what I call animal nut. And you know, him and I were attached at the hip. He'd take me around everywhere. We'd go fishing, we'd go catching iguanas. And, you know, I, we kind of kept all the stuff at his house at first until little by little, I'd have my own pets. And I'm lucky where my dad is somewhat involved as well, where he really had, you know, he loves wildlife in general, but he, he really likes turtles and tortoises. Um, so growing up, that gave me the opportunity to be able to grow a collection to, you know, have a collection and involve my family. And I don't think everybody can say they're that lucky. So I'm 
definitely lucky, you know, to be in that situation. Yeah. I mean, especially Florida in general. I mean, are you keeping a lot of these animals outside? Oh yeah. That's, you can't beat it. You can't beat it. I mean, depending on what it is, obviously you need to cater the needs to whatever species you're working with. Um, but in general, you know, the, the stuff that I really love, the cyclura, the giant, you know, rhino iguanas, Cuban iguanas, that stuff, there's nothing better than having them big walk-in outdoor enclosures where you go up to them and give them a scratch on the chin and give them a little treat and can't beat that. And then the turtles and tortoises, perfect climate down here for most of them. Um, so now a lot of the babies I raise inside, hatch them out in the incubator, raise them inside to a little bit bigger and stronger and then get them back out. Yeah. And I've seen like, I'm kind of surprised, like I was just trying to look through your Instagram and see like exactly what you work with. And it seems like a wide variety of things. Like one day there's a tortoise coming out of an egg and then you're posting a bunch of cyclora stuff. So like, what, uh, uh, what are you keeping and what are you breeding? Like specifically? Specifically it's, um, right now it's turtles, tortoises, iguanas, and prevo squirrels. So that's kind of the curveball. You may you may need to explain what that even is. Yep. I... <laughs> a prevo squirrel is basically a Southeast Asian squirrel species. It's the same size as a gray squirrel, but it's red, white, and black. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, and basically, um, as a kid, I would go in and out of import facilities, and you know I learned a lot from those situations. And I remember seeing those squirrels. I would see them all the time. As I got older, you know, you learn more. You learn about the do's and don'ts, what's good, what's bad. And uh, the squirrels, I never really saw them around. And so when I saw them, I was like, man, I really like those. I remember those. You know, I remember those when I was a kid. I want to work with them. And, again, you put them in a cage. You learn as much as you, uh, about them as you can. Put them in the right situation. And I've been able to produce offspring for the, from those guys too. Wow. So um, how does a different world? <laughs> how does like the rearing go with the mother and everything? Squirrel, I, just, I just need to know the process. <laughs> you need to know. <laughs> squirrels have a really fast metabolism. You know, I'm sure we've all seen, I mean, we've all seen squirrels, but seen ice age and stuff like that, but it, it's the truth. <laughs> like that little crazy squirrel, that's what they're like. So rearing a baby squirrel, if you let the mother do it, it happens quick. You know, she has her milk that has evolved to raise a baby squirrel. Their metabolism is very fast. They grow very fast. Uh, if you raise them yourself, you need to keep up with mom. So every three hours, you're feeding them. You're keeping them extra warm. Uh, you know, you're making sure they're well hydrated. And they can be weaned in three months. So they're, they grow super fast. And is that a thing? Like, does a mother commonly reject them? Is that a situation where you would have to do it yourself? Uh, it's happened before. Um, and you have to act quick. You have to be able to read that situation. You have to be able to tell, hey, you know, she's not feeding the baby. Because like I said, that fast metabolism, if they're not getting the food, they'll die. That's just the reality of it. You know, you can't, you can't sugarcoat it. The, the baby squirrels, they need food 24-7. If they're not getting it, they won't make it. Now, I have to say that that's like a new one. I do not know anyone with a squirrel. Is there, is there a pet market for them? Uh, there is. There's definitely a pet market, but it's more of a hobby for me. I mean, I just, they fascinated me. Like I said, I, I kind of had like these flashbacks of when I used to see them. And things have changed over the years. You know, the same stuff that you saw 10, 20 years ago aren't the same things that you see now. So, you know, I could kind of picture them. I was like, oh, they, they, they got my interest. They got my interest. I want to work with them. 
And it's one of those things that you don't really see too many people breeding or anything like that. So that's another thing that kind of piqued my interest. I was like, oh, there's not that much information on them out there. Let me give it a whirl. Let me try it out. And that's all it was. <laughs> that's crazy. That is, that's a first, I think. <laughs> squirrels. Although we did talk about squirrels last week and Melissa dislikes squirrels. Okay. I was trying to not say anything because clearly he has a love for them. <laughs> I was holding my leader. tongue this whole Second time. Second time in a row. Actually, yeah. Tony keeps squirrels too. Well, no, he just rears them up. Yeah. But... I was trying to not be rude and talk about my huge dis, uh, disgust for now. How dare you? I what, hate kind of, what kind of beef do you have with squirrels? What they ever do to you? They're psycho little monsters. They are psycho, and they have no fear. I feel like, like they just come right up to you. Like they just—they're mm, psycho. But we talked specifically that we've decided college squirrels are different. Yeah, college campus, squirrels. college campus squirrels are crazier. I was just about to say the same thing. Those ones that go in the trash can and take the pizza. Yes. And then they pop their head back on. They're like, what's going on? So I think college, college. And there's one girl my... on campus that feeds them and gets mm-hmm. them to come in her lap and shit. Right. There's always one. Yeah. They, they get so bold. They take your, they, they take your wallet. Oh, they pull them out. But they, <laughs> those I, are those Miami squirrels. They'll take, your, they'll take your lunch money. That's it. Uh, yeah, I can't. They're such savages. I guess talking about like South Florida, obviously like there's a lot of importers and as someone who's like a biologist and interested in conservation, I mean, how do you see the relationship between say like pet trade and conservation, importing, exporting, that kind of thing? Oh, that's a world that's fascinated me. I love talking about that. Um, Just like with anything, there's pros and cons. Everybody's going to have their own opinion. Uh, Again, I've been lucky enough where I've been able to see it even as a little kid walking in and out of those import facilities, how things have kind of changed. And the truth of the matter is every kind of thing you just spoke about has its place. Um, at the end of the day, how do we make it all work harmoniously? It's just being responsible. That's what it comes down to. You know, own your shit. Do what you're supposed to do. If you're supposed to build your cages with this regulation, do it. Don't release your stuff, you know, it's an economy. People make money off of it. If it can be done sustainably, I'm all for it. Um, but that work kind of has to be done. Um, a lot of the animals don't have that. Um, and every species has their challenges. But, you know, we we look at situations, you know, let's say tortoises. Let's say redfoot and yellowfoot tortoises. They get imported every year. Um, you're talking about animals that the larger they are, the more wanted they are because the more meat they have so what's the better situation letting them get eaten or letting them go into captive breeding programs and i think the happy medium is excuse me making sure that a good portion of them are going to responsible owners that actually care about putting more on this planet so we have assurance colonies um and then everybody just love everybody work with each other you know there's there's so much bad blood in the animal world. And it's like so many passionate people that everyone has their own opinion and you respect everybody's opinion, but that's what it is, is you, you have to respect it and you have to work with anybody, anybody that, you know, shows the fire and the passion. Like I want to work with you. I want to, I want to talk to you. I want to find out what you're doing. I want to know how I can help. You know, I don't want to be one of these closed people. That's like, Oh no, I'm doing my own thing. You know, get away from me. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think that's because the more and more we talk to people from different fields, there's obviously crossover, but there's also a large division, say, between biologists, you know, private keepers, zookeepers. zookeepers. I mean, like everyone seems to have their own opinions and it doesn't always mesh like you'd hope it would. Like we all have a common thread here, which is the animals. So why can't we come to at least some type of conclusion to where we can work together to do things like insurance colonies, but the zoo people don't trust the private keepers because they don't know shit. And probably the same thing with biologists and vice versa. And everyone's probably, you know, I mean, who's, and that probably has a little bit of merit. I mean, I'm just a guy who keeps them in my house. I mean, I didn't go to school for this, but I can breed them. Sure. Sure. Live. I mean, isn't that, isn't that something? Yeah, absolutely. And, And there's, there's something to learn from everybody. And that's, that's what I always say too, is I go to a lot of these conservation events and I try to encourage as many people as I can to go. I don't care what your background is. I don't care if, you know, you work for a zoo. I don't care if you're a biologist. I don't care if you're a kid with his first bearded dragon, you know, that kid that has his bearded dragon might be so obsessed with his bearded dragon that he or she may have seen something that you've never even realized. And if everybody just kind of was a little bit more open-minded and, and listened, hey, listen here, listen there, they make their own kind of resume stronger. They learn more, you know, and that's what it's all about. Nobody, I don't care who you are. I don't care, you know, I respect all the greats out there. And I think anybody that's truly great, the first thing they'll admit is, I don't even know, I don't know shit, basically, you know. You know, there's people out there that have dedicated their lives 30, 40, 50 years of conservation, living out there, living with the animals, and they know a lot. But I think most of those people will tell you, like, I haven't even scratched the surface. And it, it it's it's true. I mean, I'm very young in this career, and I know I haven't scratched the surface, but I feel like even doing – even if I keep the same job for the next 20, 30 years, I feel like I'm going to still be searching for that knowledge. And that's yeah. the beauty of it. That's what keeps you going. I don't I don't think people realize that with reptiles in general, in comparison to so many other animals, the amount of knowledge that we have about their natural behaviors, their obviously breeding behaviors, stuff like that is like almost zero. Like we're we're still at the at the ground floor with that kind of stuff. Sure. It's all at its infancy and there's people that are pouring tons of money and time and research and finding out incredible things all over the world, but we haven't even scratched the surface. There's still people, you know, finding new species left and right. You know, there's tons to learn, tons to learn. Nobody knows it all and everybody can learn from everybody. Absolutely. And obviously we talked a little bit before you have some zoo experience. So can we go through a little bit of the timeline of, basically how you got into your career and kind of the different jobs you went through. If someone's looking to do something similar to what you're doing now, how would they go about that? Um, so I get that question a lot. And the kind of answer that I normally give that isn't everybody's favorite is find what you love and don't stop till you get there. Everybody wants, you know, something hand fed to them. Hey, you need to do this, 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 and this, and then you'll get here. Bottom line is that's not how it works for us. You need to create your own path. You need to pave your own path. Your path is constantly changing. 
And as you experience more, as you put yourself more out there, you volunteer. I always tell people, volunteer as much as you can. That's how you find out whether you like or you don't like something. Build a reputation for yourself. Your name means something. Go, you know, if you think you like big cats, go find a place that has big cats around you. Get as much experience with big cats as you can. If you don't like big cats, if you just want to kind of diversify your knowledge, go work with a, you know, at a place where there's animals that make you feel uncomfortable. Because guess what? It might inspire you to, to want to work with them. You might learn something about them that makes you want to learn about them. Um, so I kind of hopped around to places where I was happy, places where I was unhappy. Uh, and I'm thankful for all the situations because there's always a positive to bring of it. Hey, I'm not going to do what I learned here because I know it's wrong. Or hey, I'm going to use this with my own life or my own collection because this worked and I like this. So um, bottom line is, Step one is you got to find what you love. Again, this is a, this is a passion, you know, driven hobby, a passion driven career. If you don't know what you love, it's going to be really hard for you because there's so many places you can go. You can go all over the world. You can study this. You can study that. Um, but if you, if you're not working on a project that really has your focus, really has your heart, I think you're in the wrong place. So, volunteer, build a reputation. Work in as many places as you can and find out what you want to do and don't stop till you get there. And if they want to be like a traditional biologist, <laughs> what is at least the, the bottom, you know, education requirements for someone wanting to go to the tr traditional, basically professional route? Sure. I mean, you have to have your college degree. So, I mean, for instance, I got, I went to the university of Miami and, uh, I got my major in biology and my minor in ecosystem science and policy. Um, so something that I think is often overlooked is the contacts that you make, you know, a lot of like-minded people that you may come across when you, when you go to school um, and you build these relationships. And it, it's funny, actually, I'm, I'm glad this came up because I only found out about my current job because a college professor that I hadn't spoken to in five years who knew I had this passion emailed me and it was like a two sentence, you know, write up. And she's like, Hey, I thought you might be interested in this. And I looked at it and I was like, I think I might be interested in this. I think she's right. So, you know, every once in a while I speak to her and I am always super thankful. I'm like, thank you so much. I don't think you realize like, this is my life now. Like, thank you so much for pushing it towards me. And again, it all comes back to contacts. She knew that I had this passion. She knew that I, loved crocs she knew that i loved reptiles and she said hey you know let me forward it to him let's see what you know let me see what he's doing and at the time i was working at a zoo and i actually made the switch i jumped from the zoo world to the kind of the biologist world so were you working with herps at the zoo as well uh i was working with mainly herps yeah um i helped uh i was assistant manager for a building so i did a lot of operation stuff in the building and i did a lot of the um, making of the programs for kind of ambassador, smaller animals in the inside sections of the zoo. So gators, you know, some small snakes, lizards, stuff like that, all the educational stuff. Do you, uh, how'd you like as far as like presenting and stuff like that? Is that something that, that you enjoyed or do you like now just being in the field kind of by yourself more so? Uh, I love it all. Um, but I just think that, you know, 
when you present, you kind of have to put this on all the time, all the time, all the time. That get that gets kind of exhausting. I was a teacher for a while as well, and I love teaching. Um, but would I want to do it again right now? No. I love the kind of mix that I have where I am pretty much teaching, but I'm teaching about what I'm learning with my work in the field. So it's it's kind of nice. You know, I'm not teaching every day. I'm not teaching out of a textbook, but I'm teaching, you know, things that I've learned and thing, you know, data that, that, you know, I've been a part of collecting out in the field and then natives versus invasives and, and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So I guess more specifically, like what kind of data are you collecting? Uh, so it's mainly data to um, understand the health of the population of South Florida crocs. Um, so the University of Florida is a big part of that as well. Uh, we, we work with them um, and, and I work for them and for other projects as well. Um, but it's just creating a database. So every croc that we catch, we take the salinity of the water, you know, the measurements, the weights. Um, if they don't have a microchip in them, we put a, a microchip in them. That's obviously unique to that animal. And then we give them a scoot clip number. Um, so if I were to be out in the field and I didn't have anything to catch a 10 foot croc, let's say, but I could see its tail. I could at least identify that croc. If it gives me a, a good look at its tail, number one, I can tell, Hey, that animal has been caught before. Uh, B where it was caught, because depending on where it's cut, you can tell where it was originally caught. Mm-hmm. And if it gives me a full, you know, shot of its tail, let's say it's out basking and I can count the scoots then I can take that back to the lab, put it into the database and find out, you know, the history of that crop. Oh, we've caught it 10 times since, you know, 1992. And you learn how much it's grown over that span of time. And do you get a decent idea of how many crocs are in the population? And are you seeing new crocs coming in as well? Yes. Yes. Um, so there, there's all sorts of stuff going on with crocs and we see new ones come in all the time. We see regulars all the time. Um, and then we see animals that we may have missed that hatched, you know, right there that just slipped by us and we kind of catch them later in life and then tag them then, microchip them then. Now I've seen like video of them in like the open ocean and stuff like that. And like, it seems like at least from an outsider's perspective, going like far lengths Are do you see a large range or do they kind of have a home within the, the power plant? So it's tough to answer without kind of compiling data through kind of like a radio transmitter type of study. Um, if you ask my opinion, I think we have resident crocs and I think we have kind of crocs that come in for breeding season. Um, crocs in the breeding season get real territorial. So there's no question that I see the most, the highest numbers um, in the breeding season. Um, no question. So to me, they're coming from outside in breeding, nesting, and then eventually some of them will make their way out. And I really think it's because of our raised nesting areas. I think that's what draws them in. And And there's plenty of food and all that stuff too, for them to sustain life. Is that something that's unique to your area? Are there only like a certain amount of nesting sites uh, that crocs inhabit, you know, along the coast, I guess, in Florida, stuff like that? Yeah. So there's basically three main areas where people focus and that's crocodile lake and key largo um everglades national park and turkey point nuclear power plant 
Uh, so we're in a really unique situation because we can modify the land. And because, you know, it's private land and because there's that interest for environmental stewardship, we're able to modify it to encourage crocodile nesting. And that's what's so fascinating. And it really is its own world. And it's funny, I mean, you asked about the captive animals and, you know, kind of how that aids you in life. And what I always tell people is like, the way I look at the canal system where I work, it's like a giant aquarium. My goal is to try to get these crocs to produce as many babies as possible. It's a conservation project. So I do this same thing that I would do for my animals at home. Same thing I do for my tortoises, same thing I do for my iguanas. Do those same things in the huge system on a large scale, and it works. We get more babies. We tag more babies. We see healthier crocs, you know? So if it wasn't for that first green iguana that I caught that I raised up, little Iggy, if it wasn't for, you know, the box turtles, the redfoot tortoises, all that stuff, I wouldn't have the knowledge of keeping breeding uh, that I that I've basically been able to apply to this conservation effort. And what are, I mean, if it's not at the power plant, I mean, what are the crocs facing as far as, uh, you know, things that they may encounter in the wild or may, what am I trying to say? <laughs> may result in their decline in any which way. Uh, so you can kind of look at anything. Uh, at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to human, human encroachment. Um, there's two kinds of people when we talk about wildlife and those are the people that are willing to live with them and the people that are willing to live without them. So it's a little bit of education. You, you want to inform people as much as you can, but then there's also people that they just, they don't get it. They want nothing to do with it. Any, you know, the only good snake is a dead snake, those type of people. Um, so you have to find that balance and you have to try to relate to the people that want nothing to do with it. You know, the example I always give, there's people that think their property value goes up down in the Keys because they have a resident crocodile. Because they go they go down there in the summer and they see, oh, you know, or in the winter, whatever you want to call it, and they see a big croc and they, they love it. There's other people that think their property value goes down. Hey, there's a croc down there. It's going to eat my dog. It's going to eat, you know. At the end of the day, if animals have any chance, people have to learn to live around them. With crocs specifically, we're talking about an apex predator, an animal that's a master at what it does, that's been around forever, and the only thing that would really stop it from continuing to be around is, is people. I mean, there, there was a time where the croc numbers were, were down below 100, and through conservation efforts, they've bounced back. So from this point on, they're definitely on the rebound, but it's it, everybody needs to be on board. We all need to work together for this. You know, the data just isn't there for crocs causing harm. It's just the, the thought of people saying, oh, there's a croc in my yard. I don't want it there. You know, who are you to say that? Live with the croc. It's cool. Bring it over to my yard. <laughs> yeah, so, Florida is not the place for you if you're worried about that. Exactly, exactly. So how close is the power plant to, like, residential communities? Uh, well, it sits on 6,000 acres. And there's oh, a lot. Of, yeah, there. Wow. It's right there on the coast. If you look at any map, you'll see it. it. Looks like a radiator. 
right there on like the southeast coast of Florida. And so within that area, there's no houses. But I mean, you leave the power plant, you go along a man-made canal and there's homes, you know, within 10 miles, I'd say. So there's okay. people around. So have you faced any like backlash from, you know, that community that's right near the power plant? No, no, because that that community isn't really, you know, they don't really deal with crocs. They're not really on the water uh, or anything like that. So the main issues you see are, are kind of further south um, where you're dealing with a lot of fishing communities and crocs coming into the docks and looking for scraps and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, uh, you don't really see anything, especially on our end. You know, I, part of my job is I send out bulletins and informative emails and kind of let people know hey you know it's croc season babies are hatching so you know you can have tiny little eight inch hatchlings be aware of that you know that we don't want to hit them be aware of where you're driving um you know it's breeding season bigger crocs are going to be around be aware where you're driving know where you're going stuff like that it's just awareness are they encouraged to like get in contact with you guys about crocs in their area i mean do you or do you just kind of worry about your area um i'm open to everybody i mean you know if anyone has questions as long as i have time i'm always willing to answer them uh in general our building is kind of separate from the actual power plant but i do go in and out of it for any kind of wildlife call um so yeah some people know me some people don't it's usually like oh hey there goes the animal guy you know, and it it gets people out of like their, you know, routine. They're like, oh, have you seen anything lately? And, you know, you, you talk here and you talk there, you tell them a story and they'll tell you a story. Oh, I saw a 20 foot python crossing the road. And it's like, why don't you call me? Cause it right. <laughs> so, um, when you see an injured cock or something, like what would be the process? Yeah. How much can you interfere? Oh, thanks for stealing my question. Oh. So you're talking about a federally protected species. Um, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife has to be notified for anything. Uh, and essentially, the decision would be made from them. <clears throat> if it was an injured animal, um, probably if it was injured from kind of a human situation, we'd probably try to – it would be their call. It would be their call, but we'd, try, we'd probably try to rehab it at a you know certified rehab place. Um or a zoo or something like that. But if it's a natural injury, you probably just let nature take its course. Mm. Right. And Interesting. obviously you're getting hands on with Crocs and stuff like that. Do you have a team that goes out with you? I love my team. I got, I definitely have a, an on-site team that they're there, you know, they may be maintenance guys or, you know, stuff like that, but they've all been trained. They all know what to do. They know how to use the machinery and they, they're my backup. So I trust them with everything. Dude, that is one hell of a job for a maintenance guy. <laughs> yeah. But they love it. And, uh, you know, we need airboat operators and stuff like that. So they're able to help me because we take out sometimes, you know, two boats to survey and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're my guys. They always back me up. So I definitely have an on-site team and then kind of an off-site team as well whenever we have to do stuff, you know and bring people in just depends on the situation. Yeah. And you mentioned tegus before and tegus are notorious, I guess, for 
raiding nests and eating eggs and stuff like that. Do you guys actually protect the crocs nests? Um, so we don't do anything to protect them in, in regards to like, you know, putting a fence around it or anything like that. We, we leave the nest alone. Um, but I have basically eyes all around the plant. So pe- anybody that comes into the plant has to get a safety and wildlife training from me. Anyone that's going to work in the, in the surrounding area. So at the very least, they have my contact. They have what a tegu looks like. So I have the advantage where I have eyes everywhere. If someone sees it, they'll call me. I'll stop what I'm doing, fly out there with some traps, with a noose, whatever I need to do, try to catch it. Um, if I can't catch it right then and there, I'll leave some traps and try to catch it, you know, for a week or two or if I still think it's there and then hopefully catch it and remove it. Mm-hmm. And have you heard uh, there's been articles that come out about like a possible population of tegus all the way up as far north as Georgia? I've been seeing that. Um and it's it's definitely believable. I mean, it's unfortunate. You're talking all these invasive species. You're talking about incredible animals. I love tegus. I love pythons. I love iguanas. I love all of them. They, they're all animals that absolutely have fascinated me. You know, I'm obsessed with them. And unfortunately, humans have put them in a situation where number one, they thrive, and number two, where people like me that care about them have to remove them. And it's just not fun. It's not, you know, what anybody wants to be doing. In a perfect world, this would never happen. And is there, I mean, any stop to the madness as far as Florida goes? (laughs) I don't think so. Doesn't look that way. Um, You know, I always promote responsible ownership. You know, you get a pet, make sure you research it. Make sure you know what you're getting into. Make sure you can keep it its whole life. That's the responsible thing to do. Um, and, and we need to stop with this farming crap, you know, stop taking these animals that you catch in one place and putting them somewhere else. That's not helping anybody. You know, you might be making your own honey hole, but we're just spreading an invasive species all over the place. Wait, what do you mean exactly? I don't think I've heard of that. Where essentially people will go to a population where there's an invasive species, they'll catch them, right? They catch them for free. They're not buying them. And they want to make their own place where they only know about the species. So they'll take them and they'll release them somewhere else. That animal will be just as prolific in that area. And it'll be that one person's honey hole. That's a new breed of scumbag. I didn't even know about I didn't even know that, that existed. They're making their own demand. But they're, they're, here. they're also spreading the invasive species just for their own. Yeah, it's, it's fucked up. Yep. Their own benefit. Yep. It happens. It happens. Like, oh, I can catch all the ones that I bring here. And you know, I don't have but, to keep them and feed them right, and do like, all the things. I get to catch them and I get paid for it. Yep. What what I guess, you know, the average Samaritan doesn't know is for you to have a population of invasive species established, you need, number one, a male. Number two, a female. You need them in the same exact area. You need them to be able to thrive and survive in the same exact area. You need them to be able to nest and you need the babies to be able to hatch, you know, incubate, hatch, and then grow up in that area. And then you need time. So odds are against that situation. It takes a lot for that to happen. So for that to happen, it's either, you know, someone's doing it on purpose or there's a natural disaster. You know, again, you heard it from me. 
I'm a huge advocate of the pet trade. I think it's really important, but I think it needs to be done more responsibly. That's all. Yeah, I mean, but the, the chances of a 1.1 getting together and breeding and making all that, it's just not very probable. Exactly, exactly. You know, you, you let anything go. I don't care what it is. The likelihood of them making it to adulthood, finding each other to reproduce, producing fertile offspring, incubating the eggs properly, babies hatching, babies growing up, and then breeding back to them, it's not likely. You know, a lot of people don't think through that whole process, but that's what has to happen for a new species to be established. Um, and unfortunately, what we're looking at is, you know, people moving around on purpose. And they know that. They know what they need to do. You know, letting one gravid female go can make a whole new population too. Wow. And how do you feel about, obviously, there's increasing legislation happening, you know, especially in Florida, especially with uh, TAYUs and stuff like that. I mean, what do you think? Uh, how do we, what can we even What's do? <laughs> it's tough. It's really tough. Uh, I understand where it's coming from. Uh, when you're talking about animals like tegus and iguanas, though, you're talking about animals that are here. They're here. Uh, you know, you, you look at the python situation and they were here already. And I guess, you know, the permitting system has done them well. But more than anything, having hunters be paid for the removal of the pythons is, is what's really kind of gained a lot of that popularity. You know, People like myself would go out and remove pythons because we were trying to help the environment. And yeah, it's, it's fun catching snakes, let's be honest. It's fun catching big pythons that, you know, when you were a kid, you never saw them. And now you see them and there's, you know, big 12, 13, 14, 15 foot snakes out there. Um, so it, it, it really is tough. You know, I, I hate to think of a world where we can't even ke keep a pet iguana especially an animal, you know, iguanas have been here for a long time. Excuse me. They've been here for a long time and they're absolutely everywhere. Um, so do I have an answer? You know, the idea that always comes up is microchipping every animal. When you're talking about uh, populations that are already established, it's tough because people can always catch new ones illegally and move them somewhere else and you never know. Um, now, if you're talking about regulating new species that have yet to be established, I think you you know, you can make more of a change that way. Right. Um, Ryan, uh, kind of different subject a little bit. Ryan in the chat said, uh, with nuclear, nuclear power plants being able to modify land and make the raised platforms, would it be worthwhile to have government programs to encourage companies to put more money in conservation? Uh, never hurts, right? Conservation is needs money. Every project needs money. Um, it needs dedicated people, and it, and it and it needs money. But it it takes those people that care. I don't I don't think most realize there's an opportunity for anything if you make it. Um, there's a lot of politics that are involved in any situation, especially if you're talking about private companies and animals and 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 stuff like that. But there's always a chance. There's always a chance. So. Are there other places doing this? Like, I've literally never heard of a power plant having this before. Are there are a lot of places around the country doing this. Uh, I know a lot of power plants in general um, because of cooling canal systems have a lot of wildlife. 
Um, so I can only speak for what I know about my, the, you know, my company where I work and their environmental stewards, you know, there's, there's a program at one of them where they protect the manatee. I mean, we protect everything we can, obviously, but there's one that focuses more on manatees. There's another one that focuses more on sea turtles. There's us that focuses more on crocodiles. And it, it all has to do with region and where you're located and what wildlife is around there. And I think it's very, very hard as far as uh, obviously we all want to do as much as we can as individuals, whether it's conservation, whether it's, you know, not contributing to, you know, issues with the environment, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's like these corporations that make such a big impact, impact. Yeah. and like to have them to somehow find a way for it to benefit them or at least be a non-factor as far as cost goes to them and be able to, you know, use this private land to our benefit to, you know, be a steward to that land is, it seems like the only, the only hope at some point as, you know, America is a place run by corporation business. Yeah. I mean, a built on businesses. Sure. Um, but you know, you can't ever let that discourage you. Um, if, if you're a person that wants to get involved and you feel like you haven't found that opportunity, look harder. They're out there. I promise you. I promise you you're out there. You know, they may be easier down here. There's a big animal community down here, but they're out there. I promise you, you do your own research. You get into now with the world the way it is, Facebook, there's a group for everything. You can find a group and you can find people that love lizards, people that love crocs, people that love anything. And there's a specialist group just for that. And you can message anyone around the world that has a focus for the same focus that you have. So you kind of have to be a hustler. You kind of have to really want what you say you want and just go for it. You know, I think a lot of people get caught up with being embarrassed or not being confident and you can't let that hold you back. If, if you care about something enough, you got to make it happen. Just make it happen. Yeah. I think it's also hard to power through that you post on a group as a new person and someone shoots you down immediately. And then you're like, Oh shit. Maybe never again on this. Like I'm just trying. I'm just trying to put myself out there because I want to do good. You know, I sure. have positive intent, and someone's striking me down. Sure, and I think I know exactly what you're talking about. And to be honest, I don't get too involved in the Facebook group just because anyone can really comment on it, and you don't know where they came from or or, or what they're doing. But if you you do your own research, even if it's to the extent of knowing about that exact person you can put yourself in a better situation to succeed. You know, don't blindly post in a chat, you know, about crocodiles. Hey, I want to look you know, I want to learn about crocodiles. Somebody tell me something like, no, you see that kind of stuff all the time, you know, write something that shows that you've put the work in like, Hey, you know, I'm super fascinated with American crocodiles. Is it true that they don't develop their salt glands? You know, if they don't hatch with salt glands, like something like that, give, Give the people that know a reason to answer you. Well, let's talk about soft glands because I don't even know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything about Crocs. So let's so, go there. Tell me a little bit about it. It's super fascinating, especially with, with my job. Um, and I can't take credit for this by any means. There's plenty of fantastic biologists that came before me uh, that figured this out. And I'm just kind of following their lead. Um, but essentially, baby American crocs, they're born without salt glands, but most of them live in salt 
estuarine environments, uh, brackish water environments. And essentially, historically speaking, in the rainy season, there'd be this big freshwater plume on top of even, I'm sorry, not plume, but saltwater, um, freshwater film on top of even the ocean where the babies would be able to lap up fresh water until their salt glands develop. Uh, so biologists that came way before my time figured this out. And on those actual berms, they dug out with a backhoe, dug out holes that collect rainwater. So in the actual canal system, which is salt water, we have tons of ponds on the berm that catch rainwater. The mother crocodiles know this. They will take their babies in their mouths from the nest site and put them in the pond. Wow. Those two things that benefits crocs and the people. Number one, the female has a good nursery for the babies to be reared in. They have a better chance at getting fresh water because since it's an enclosed pond, when it does rain, the water's not moving around and it stays in that pond. It's not moving. So there is that freshwater film. And number two, it makes it easy, my job easier because I know where the babies are. I don't have to go chasing around all over the place. They're in that pond. So I can go and, and better monitor the population and the situation and be able to catch more babies and collect more data and tag more and, you know, it's better all around. So that whole idea is just super fascinating to me. Even though I live it every day, it, I love it. I mean, I look at it. I have a picture um, of a mother crocodile with a baby in her mouth. She's, she's digging it out of her nest. Oops, sorry about that. She's digging a baby out of her nest, and in the background, you see the pond. And so it kind of shows the whole, you know, history of why this situation is successful. And is that is that natural process of the, the freshwater coming down and creating that film, is that just not happening as often? Uh, well, humans have kind of altered the flow of the Everglades uh, the historic flow of the Everglades through a network of canal systems. So it is kind of complicated. You know, crocodiles tend to find a way, but I like to think that we kind of help in that way. I mean, we accelerate it. Um, so it's not it's not what it used to be. This is the way that we kind of modified it to still work with the current system. Right, because right. the canal. We need the canals, but you want to give that other option for them. We already right. fucked it up, so we <laughs> want to like find a way to make it okay. Yeah. Right, right. And it seems it seems ideal because obviously you're there watching over these animals. So right, right. And then we want to give them the best chance at life. So we release them and basically targeted release points where we think they have everything they could ever possibly want: fresher water, food protection, sun, you know, all that. So we can kind of control the situation better to, to increase the numbers. Yeah. And I, I was wondering as far as like those ponds go, would that make them more open to predation? I mean, could a bird just be chilling there and he knows that pond is going to get filled up with little crocs and he's ready to pick them off one by one. So timing is everything. Um, the three and four year old crocs, the, the juvies, they eat crocs. Crocs eat crocs, and they figure out, hey, this time of year in these ponds, there's going to be some tasty little baby crocs. So timing is everything. So you have to beat the crocs to the crocs. And oh, you have to God, beat- I didn't know they eat each other. Oh, yeah. So how do you, 
how do you get them to safety? Do you rear them at all or are you just moving them? No, it's, it's strictly, uh, you know, we can keep them for three days. So that gives us enough time, enough time. Cause sometimes we have three or four clutches hatch at a time that gives us enough time to mark down all the data and then release them. And do you know, like what the natural success rate would be in comparison to your success rate? Mm, that I couldn't tell you. It's it's low no matter what. You know, you're talking about an animal that's at the bottom of the food chain that can't really defend itself. Uh, the reason crocs, you know, have so many babies is is because they supply food to a lot of other animals. Uh, and you know, strength in numbers. You, the more you have, the more you have survive. So. It's that I, I couldn't give you a statistical answer that gives you, you know, exactly what you're looking for. But the more the merrier, basically, you want to try to get as many out there because the more you get out there, the more you're going to survive. And, and you just based on your observations and, and what you know and dealing with other biologists and scientists, you know, you you learn where the best place to put them is. And what would be that best place? I mean, what provides cover for for a baby crop? mangroves anybody that knows mangroves knows that they're a network of entangled roots and anyone that's tried to catch baby crocs knows how hard it is to catch them when they're in the mangroves it's pretty much impossible and what is what you were going to say something oh no i'm just about to google mangroves <laughs> mangroves mangroves are basically what holds Florida's coastal environments together. Uh, hurricanes, you know, there we have several species of mangroves. The main one we have is the red mangrove, and they have these root systems that are just like piled on top of the oh, yeah. in the water. The roots are in the water, so the babies can kind of get in between all the mangroves. And mangroves will grow in both fresh and salt water, but they're kind of famous for being able to live in salt water and excrete the salt on their leaves. Um, so crocs prefer fresh water, but they can live in both. But when they're babies, they need access to fresh water. So that's what complicates it a little bit. So if you can find like a kind of a brackish type area with lots of mangroves, excuse me, lots of mangroves and cover, you're doing all right. Wow. So I've, I've, I've heard like the Everglades being considered like, a filtration system for a lot of the the water going through Florida and it comes all the way down to where you are. Do you see like a lot of pollution or anything like that as far as where you are or is it relatively pristine? Um, so, you know, kind of the boundaries of our area are pristine because the public can't get to them public areas you know people can fish people can dump their trash and all that stuff i guess coastal areas you always have people's trash coming in no matter what but you know in our surrounding areas they're they're pretty awesome i mean you see stuff there that you don't see in other places because they're not fished they're not overpopulated uh so it's nice when you're out there you know looking for crocs and you see all these other animals and what are they what are they eating out there the crocs yeah um when they're little you know fish crabs shrimp uh you know some little insects 
we have all that stuff. We have plenty of birds, each other, um, plenty of food. So most of the crocs we catch got big full bellies, big fat tails. So they're doing all right. (laughs) And people are probably going to be like, we went this whole time without mentioning a snake yet. So uh, obviously you're out there all the time. It's Florida. You're going to see some some snakes. snakes. What do you see besides Burmese pythons? Um, The most common snake I see, believe it or not, is the Eastern Diamondback. So super cool because some people go their whole life without seeing one, but I'm lucky enough to kind of see them all the time. Um, they come out, especially the cooler months, they come out and bask on the roads and stuff like that. And everybody knows a rattlesnake. So I get a lot of calls. Hey, there's a rattlesnake here. And, you know, we get them off the roads. We get them out of, uh, you know, areas where there's high human frequency. And we have protected mitigation land where we can put them out there and they're protected. Yeah, that's not something that rattlesnakes in general, it's not something that you think is in like a swampy you know, mangrove area. Yeah, uh, but we do have some, you know, raised, drier, rocky areas. And I haven't caught a rattlesnake out there that isn't super fat and healthy. So they're a lot of fun. I could watch them all day. Um, It was crazy, actually. I saw some situation, I want to say two or three weeks ago, that I don't think I'll ever be able to explain. But I was driving in and out of the corner of my eye, I saw – Something that was off, something that was different. So I hit it in reverse, and I was like, "What is going on over there?" And I saw in the fall, you know, in the distance, this weird shape. So I drove over to it, and I was like, "Okay, what's going on here?" And before I could get close enough to ID the bird, there was a bird of prey that was on top of something. And so I drive up to it, and it turns out it's an eastern diamondback. And the eastern diamondback, it looks like it's untouched. So I couldn't understand what was happening. I couldn't see if the bird of prey was on top of it. You know, it was some type of hawk. I couldn't tell if it was a Cooper's hawk, a sharpshin hawk, a red tail. It flew away, you know, before I got close enough to ID it. And you would think, oh, maybe it killed the rattlesnake and it was trying to eat it, or, or maybe it was trying to kill the rattlesnake. But the snake was perfect. It didn't have a scratch on it. And it was rattling, and I couldn't figure it out. But something I think about, I'm like, what was going on there? Was he trying to eat it? What was he trying to do? Yeah, you would think it wouldn't just like softly land on it. Like, all right, I'm going to eat you now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I didn't know what was going on, but it's something to think about for sure. I'm sure you see a bunch of things out there that like the normal person would not as far as behaviors if you're out there, you know, that often. Are there any interactions that you're surprised about? Expect the unexpected, right? (laughs) Tell us. No, but um, in regards to Crocs, I mean, I'm lucky we were, you're talking about this extremely reclusive, extremely shy animal, even though they're big, they're, you know, these big predators, they're extremely shy. So to be able to witness courtship, to be able to witness fighting for territory, that just blows my mind, no matter how many times I've seen it. And this last year, a couple months ago, I got videos and, and uh, was able to actually document two just bruiser males, you know, 11, 12 foot males just beating the crap out of each other. And I have a video of the bigger male, the what ended up being the victor, grabbing the other one's head, and you just hear crunch, crunch, crunch. And eventually he won, and the other one that got crunched swam away. But, I mean, 
I could watch that all day. And I always tell people, when I tell people that story, you know, of course I don't have my camera. That's a given because when you have your camera, stuff like that doesn't happen. So I have my iPhone and I'm trying to film it. I'm trying to film it. And I'm pretty good about, you know, keeping my battery charged and just shows you how much I was filming because I ran it down to zero. I watched them for two hours until eventually, you know, the, the male that lost swam off, but my mind was blown, blown. Nature, right do there, they, planet Earth. Really crazy. Do they kill each other often? Is that a thing? Can they fight to the death? They, they, they will. They, I mean, they will. Um, if the male that's losing is, you know, willing to risk his life that long, it could absolutely happen. What is the best way to effectively deal with a dead? croc that you come <laughs> what do you Let do? other creatures eat what do you do you just leave it there yeah, you just leave it i mean nature that's nature you you we report it so that u.s fish and wildlife is able to document that data but you just leave it that feels wrong do you i mean obviously <laughs> I don't know. yeah yeah because feels, my brain says well <laughs> i'm i'm wondering because obviously you probably get to know certain individuals so is there like, and you can find an individual that you know, that you see, you observe all the time and it dies. Right. I don't think that's happened yet. Um, it's very rare that you find crocs that just like go belly up. It doesn't really happen like that. You're, you know, they're very hard creatures. If, it, if it's little, you're probably never going to see it. It's going to eaten by something, going to get eaten by something else. If it's big and you do see it, there's probably a reason why that happened. Um, it may have come into that area to die. It may have swam a little bit too upstream and went into, you know, the big boss's territory and, you know, breathed his last last breath. But you, you never know. And how many are like, what is, uh, how many males are in a territory? Like how many females? Uh, so I myself personally have only witnessed male-to-male combat i've never witnessed female combat um and i see males regularly you know in kind of their territory with you know up to four or five females in the breeding season so so that one male is hogging all the all the ladies <laughs> that's it he fights for the the ideal territory and the biggest baddest and i guess prettiest girls come to that area well good for him Yep. Earlier you spoke about like croc breeding season. When is that? Uh, so in South Florida, you typically get fighting for territory and courtship in January, February, March. Then laying typically happens in April. And then you're talking about usually three months incubation. So late June, July, early August is typically when we see hatchlings. I think that's coincides with our corn snake situation <laughs> they're, they're basically corn snakes. <laughs> <laughs> what's average clutches for these guys um i've seen anything from i want to say like i think 16 to 30 i'm sure it goes even more than that and i'm sure it goes a few less than that yeah that's it you probably have a good amount of babies on your hands yeah yeah <laughs> Last year, we caught and tagged and released 225. Wow. Damn. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. You and don't sleep so- much in the hatching season, but it's all worth it. 
and have you have you seen um do you guys microchip those babies and have you seen them like survive over a season yet that's like my favorite thing because when you you catch them later and you're like that's my baby he said that he said looking at the skooks and stuff and looking at them get along well yeah i know but i didn't know if he's had a baby grow because i mean obviously that's by far the most vulnerable time of its life oh yeah yeah and obviously most of them don't survive we you know we know that but it's like a kind of a sense of pride and just happiness when you're like you're like i know that baby i type that baby and I mean, are they out of the woods? I mean, how long does it take for them to get to a size to where they're out of the woods or breeding size? If they're a male, they're never out of the woods until they're huge. Uh, Because then comes looking for females and every little male wants to find females. And it's just comes down to how far is he willing to push it? And if he pushes it too far, it can mean his life. Gets a head crunch. That's it. Head crunch. (laughs) Most of them, at least I've never seen ones that are like way different in size go at it. I think they generally size each other up and they're like, okay, I think I could take this dude. We're the, we're pretty much the same size. I don't think it happens where like you just have these reckless little guys that are like, Masters, I'm, I'm going to do it because I want the girls. You know, I don't, I don't think it happens like that. Yeah. At least I know the limits. I know what they're doing. <laughs> They're not dumb creatures though. Like these are these are animals that are so fascinating because of how intelligent they are. Um, there's croc keepers all over the world that find out crazy stuff with crocodilians every single day. You know, they call up crocs that, that are in communal ponds, twenty crocs, twenty gators in one pond, and they call them by name. And that one animal will come up to them, and it's not even food, you know, uh, motivated. Yeah. So there's so much going on with these animals that we haven't scratched the surface of. I um, I remember that. It's making the connections in my head. Recently, I don't know if you know who Nathan Sweeting is. Yeah. Um, we had him on the podcast recently, and that was, like, my first, like, little dip into... And, it, and I think it's interesting because, like, obviously... I wonder how they use that intellect in the wild. Cause obviously in captivity, we're manipulating them so that we can feed them. We can move them. We can do all that stuff. So like, but what are they doing with that intellect in the wild? There's, it, there's just so much going on. I mean, the, the studies, the possible studies are endless. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, but there's evidence of alligators putting, sticks on their snouts and swimming up to birds in nesting season. So the birds come down to get the sticks off their snouts and then they eat the birds. Like, are you kidding me? That's like, that's hunting with a tool. Right. Like, we were surprised that chimps did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're super smart animals. And like, like I said, I'm constantly fascinated. We, we just recently dug out a couple ponds, new ponds. Um, and within days, there was already activity. You know, I saw croc slides going in and out, and they were investigating. Um, there's just, like, crazy stuff that happens all the time. I've seen them chew on buoys. I've seen them go up, like, like playing, like, actual playful behavior. Like, people would think, like, a croc would never do anything like that. You know, they're super instinctual. You know, they're, they hunt, and they sleep, and they eat, and that's it. I've, I've witnessed them playing with buoys like they're not trying to eat them they're just 
crunching them, playing around with them, coming back to them, like, what's this? Chomp, chomp. All right, I'll go away, and then I'll come back. What's going on here? Chomp, chomp. It's crazy, you know? <laughs> and do they, in that area, do they interact with gators? Are gators in that area as well? Or do they uh, compete? In the main canal system, we don't get too many gators because the water is really salty. The gators obviously don't prefer that. But in the surrounding canal systems, in the surrounding areas, uh, we definitely see gators as well. Um, and I've never seen any croc gator negative interaction. You know, I've, I've seen it where I'm out catching crocodiles for a survey and you'll see, you know, a gator 20 feet, 30 feet from a croc and there's nothing really going on. And someone, someone asked in the chat, are there any uh, invasive crocodilians? There are. We have the spectacle caiman. So they're and are those in certain like areas or is that something that's spreading or? So the caiman, I want to say there's reports. Don't quote me on this one since the seventies. So caiman was a popular, wow. basically disposable pet that people would get for cents, you know, back in the day and they would release them. And so we have a small population of caiman, um, you know, there, there's researchers working on removing them, um, but they've been around for a while. I think if they were going to cause a real, real big problem or, or you know, take over, it would have happened already. But that really hasn't happened. Um, but, you know, I'm all for removing them from the environment. They're not supposed to be there. I mean, does all this shit make you wonder, like, why everyone's so focused on the Burmese python when it's like, I mean, thousands of species seemingly? whether it's reptiles, whether it's plants, whether it's insects, everything. Sure. Um, the Burmese python specifically is a good thing and a bad thing. It's good because it does raise awareness. It It's kind of an introduction. <laughs> Excuse me. It, it's kind of an introduction for people that aren't involved in that world to learn about invasive species. But it's also something that's been kind of sensationalized and like you know everybody freaks out with a big snake it is a problem don't get me wrong you know i'm all for removing them 100 percent. they are causing a lot of um ecological damage there's no question about that um but it's just easy for the kind of the media to to blow it up oh pythons are gonna come eat you and you know like, i would think a spectacle came in maybe you know would be more of a sensational story right but they just haven't spread or had nearly as much of a negative effect, at least proven negative effect as Burmese pythons. And, and Burmese pythons are continuing to go up north and they're much more prolific than caiman are. Now, obviously we know that that like, uh, what was it like? The fish and wildlife study or whatever it was that they're gonna, Burmese pythons and reticulated pythons can come up to, you know, invade half the country. I mean, we know that that's probably not true, but I mean, do you know the bounds of where it is habitable for an animal like that? And where's kind of the most Northern part they found them so far? Uh, you have to look, I don't know the, the most Northern part. And, and when you look at a lot of these um, databases, you have to be able to weed out what is an escaped pet and what is 
a python that's moving you know a breeding population that's moving north mm-hmm. um and i haven't you know focused on that or, or really looked much into that um but i will bring up the tegus again because i know there was a point i remember hearing you know just word of mouth like oh like you know the the main tegu breeders were always in cooler areas the, the tegus needed to brumate they needed to be cooled and people would be like, oh, yeah, you can't breed tegus in South Florida. It's too hot. And it's like, <laughs> not. Like, that's not how this works. Um, and with the tegu specifically, you're talking about a much more cold, tolerant animal that I, that I think really needs to be focused on because you're talking about a prolific creature that has a much larger uh, diet. You know, they're omnivores. They're, you know, egg specialists as well they can absolutely devastate our ground nesting bird species, you know, gators, crocs, turtles, all that stuff. Tegus are extremely intelligent. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that needs to be looked into, but then again, you're, you're talking about a management issue that's so hard to keep up with. Um, unfortunately in the world of biology, we often wait for a proven negative before we intervene to mitigate it. Um, and, and that ends up costing a lot more money in the long run, money, effort, time, all that in the long run. That's sorry, James, uh, our friend, James Lewis in the chat sent us vodka. I wasn't going to bring, now, I was going to do a secretly that, off no, camera. There is no fucking secretly. You just handed just, me a shot. Glass, no, I and just now brought we're them do it off. Camera. I was going to do it off camera, but you <laughs> How was I? I was gonna. I'm gonna like cough and wince and. Cap- <laughs> I thought that was just a shot of water. Yeah, I mean, like, basically. I yeah, I wasn't gonna. Y'all were in such deep, good animal talk. Well, I was it's just, just hard because, like, I don't camera. know. <laughs> I don't know how much to beat that dead horse in a sense. But then again, I want people in the hobby. We tend to downplay it because it's to our benefit. I think to downplay the situation and say, you know. They're really overblowing that problem with the Burmese pythons. You know, everything's fucked in the Everglades. But obviously, it's an issue. Obviously, tegus are an issue. Obviously, no one wants to not be able to keep them anymore. But how do we keep from irresponsible people, you know, making the problem worse? You obviously have to, number one, hold yourself accountable. Cheers. (laughs) And then being a responsible owner goes past what, you do for yourself you know everything's word of mouth if you're a serious keeper you know you know tons of other serious keepers you go to shows you you know you do all that stuff you got to call people out you got to say hey like what's going on here you know not everybody likes to be that type of person but it's unfortunately gotten to the point where if we don't it affects our own lives you know people such as yourselves people such as myself i want to be able to keep animals I I already told the story. Animals are my life, a big part of what I was, what I am, and what I will be. And I'd be devastated uh, if I didn't have that. And I think humans in general will lose, you know, kind of a touch of that world if everything is regulated. Nobody can get anything. You know, your average kid growing up, their parents don't want to buy them a lizard or a snake. They already have that issue. Now you want to talk about a permitting system. They're really not going to be allowed to get a lizard or snake. And that means they're just going to lose more and more touch with nature. Right. Not, not every kid has, you know, the opportunity to go 20, drive 20 minutes 
and go to a national park and enjoy nature. So, you know, for me, that captive wildlife is people's avenue to nature, to conservation. What they're keeping in that tank may have nothing to do with conservation, but it may inspire them to want to help in the future. And I think that's what it did for me. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it kind of sucks because the people who are doing a lot of the negative things aren't the real people who are very involved in the community. It's the people like we just had one here. We live in Philly, but this guy was in Jersey and he got like 40 diamondback terrapins or something. And there's been multiple people taking diamondback terrapins. And it's like, obviously he was going to bring that and try to sell them, you know, at a show here, like Hamburg or put it into the pet trade. But it's like that guy, no one knew that guy. So it's hard to be like to police ourselves when it's some random guy taking advantage sure. of, of wildlife, you know, kind of a one-off guy just trying to look for money. Sure. And, I don't know. You can't, you can't nip that bud before. There's a million one-off guys out there. Yeah. 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 We're not going to be perfect. I mean, that, we all know that clearly our situation. And I say we, because we're all in this together is not perfect by any means. And for it to be perfect is just really a really, really tall order. Uh, it's just about being the best and most responsibly possibly can be. There's always going to be that outlier. There's always going to be, you know, one bad apple. But the more people get together and back each other up and, and hold people accountable, uh, you know, don't support the people that are doing the bad things. And if you sell a snake to somebody or if you, you know, you encourage them, hey, you know, we're doing this the right way. This is how you do it. Uh, you know, and stop buying from the people that aren't doing it right. And yeah. then you, you kind of weed out the bad and keep the good. Yeah. And I, I think there's a difference obviously between when we were first getting these species in and the fact that now we have gone so far in captive breeding, it may be, you're making that choice just because that animal's cheaper sometimes and you're getting it from a source that may be unknown or lesser than you could get it just because of the money factor. And I think, if everyone just wasn't so impulsive, you just waited and you support the people who are doing the good work. You know, the people who are, I mean, there's a crazy amount of people working with tortoises, with cyclora and all these things that were once highly, you know, smuggled, but now we have the opportunity to get amazing captive animals. I mean, it's an awesome opportunity that, that we have as keepers in 2019 that no one has before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we all know the, pe the people that you're talking about that, that buy an animal cheaper don't get the answers from the people that they bought it from because they don't care. And then they come to people that do care and want all the answers, even though they didn't support them. You know, it's, it's all about accountability, you know, supporting the good people. And, you know, you, you try to weed out the bad eggs that way. Right. What are you doing with the dog? Sorry, she was just sticking her butt and I wanted her to turn around. You're distracting me. Well, that's not my fault. So let's, I guess, Did let's we, talk about some what? Did we already talk about what snakes he keeps? Well, yeah, that's what I wanted. I wanted to get to private keeping. Also, I guess snakes would be a good place to start because I haven't seen any snakes on your Instagram page that seemingly you keep. So wow, do you where's keep the snakes? love, my first snakes? I got mad love for snakes. Um but I don't keep very many of them. Right now, I have a yellow rat snake and a wild-caught Florida boa. 
and that's it. Mm, sounds like you like those turtles much more. I do love my squirrels above snakes. <laughs> well, I and I think that something like obviously you work with a bunch of tortoises, and that's honestly as far as conservation goes and stuff like that. I mean, that's so important at this point, and you know, cyclora stuff like that. So, oh, is is that something commonly that you see? No, it's not. There's basically one known population that's been a long, around for a long time, and, and even people that know about it, it's real tough to find them, real, real tough to find them. Um, they're very secretive creatures, and they use gopher tortoise burrows, and, you know, they live underground. A lot of the – I have yet to – in all my searches, I have yet to find one alive. I've only found one that was – just run over like 20 minutes previously. It was like a super fresh little neonate uh, that had just gotten run over. They're tough to find. Well, at least that's good. Um, isn't there like a like an island of monkeys in Florida somewhere? What? Yeah, there's monkeys in Florida. So we have the rhesus macaque population, and then we have, I think, a vervet population as well. Um, and I actually went to go see the rhesus macaque population over at silver springs like a month ago i went camping which i highly recommend if you guys ever come down here uh check out all the springs they're incredible incredible um but yeah there's silver springs was an old zoo essentially and they put these macaques on an island kind of exhibit and didn't realize that they swam and they swam and started the population and you go there and you know, you're kind of, you can go in a, in a kayak and you just see monkeys like eating native Florida plants. And it's like, what? Like you see macaques hanging out in, you know, cypress trees and it just doesn't make any sense. And it's super fascinating, but it's like, holy crap, what's going on here? Who needs to travel and you can just find everything you need in Florida? Florida is a different world in so many aspects. <laughs> it's a different world. That's it. It's a different world. But so, I, got, I got distracted uh, on them. Yeah, on the we're monkeys, talking about snakes. So, like, I mean, since obviously you only have two, are you into, like, the snake captive breeding thing? Do you go to shows? Do you, like, keep up with, like, the breeders? Or I'm not. How involved are you in that? I'm not as much involved in the captive snake world. Um, I just recently went to the Venevis Symposium that was down here. That was super fascinating. Uh, snakes fascinate me a hundred percent, you know, I'm fascinated by snakes. I just, I just don't keep as many. That's all. Um, I guess for me, it's easier to keep. And I am a little bit more fascinated in regards to captive keeping of, you know, the iguanas and the turtles and tortoises and stuff like that. You put them in big outdoor enclosures and I like that aspect of it. Although I love me some snakes. I really do. Uh, uh-huh. It doesn't seem like it, but okay. <laughs> Just at the moment, I don't have very many. I'm waiting for your two-minute speech about your love for snakes because you, every other animal, I feel like, got a really heartfelt speech about their love except for snakes. Oh, you live in the, the only place where it's easier to keep a rhino iguana than it than a is snake. a snake. So. <laughs> exactly, though. Like, when you build these outdoor enclosures, you know, the snakes will use them and all that, but they're not as active, you know, in general. You know, if you have like a Kribo or something, you see them moving around all over the place. But most of the snakes, you know, don't move around as much. So those big outdoor enclosures, you kind of want something that's going to be moving around in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just, 
it seems like from an outsider's perspective, the cyclora are just like the relationship you can have with that animal seems second to none to everything else. Did I just crack in my voice? Oh, baby, your voice is cracked like 10 yeah. times. I don't know what's going on tonight. It's I just haven't, lot, I've been yeah. nice and haven't said anything. No, it's cracked a lot before that. You got emotional with the cyclora. I don't blame you. Yeah. Pulling <laughs> 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 heartstrings. <laughs> so I guess explain a little bit of the relationship that you have with cyclora. Um, so I'm Cuban. I have Cuban descent. Uh, both my parents are Cuban. And so the first cyclera I got naturally were Cuban rock iguanas. And I still have them to this day, uh, which is a big part of keeping. I always tell people that, like, make sure you can actually keep the animals. Like, I had a cyclera that she retired with me, and she was over 55 years old before she passed. So when you get these animals, realize that stuff. Don't just get it because you're going to get rid of it. They're super long-lived animals that you really do build relationships with. Uh, and Cyclera have always been a huge fascination of mine. And one of my goals is to see them all in the wild. I would like to do that, you know, before I peace out from this world. And it seems like you have a caiman behind you, a grand caiman iguana. Do yeah. you have those as well? I mean, obviously, it's going to be probably a mix, but... right. I do. I do have them. I wish I had the pure ones, but I don't. Uh, but yeah, I'm just fascinated by them. Correct. What's that? Those are still illegal, correct? Uh, pure caimans? Uh, they exist in the zoo world, and so they're definitely here. Uh, and then I believe there's some in the private sector as well. You know, it's kind of a tight-knit community um, with people that really care about the captive conservation and not kind of breeding them to other stuff. Uh, so they do, I know they are out there. Uh, and I know there's, you know, a lot of breeders out there that are doing DNA testing to find out exactly what percentage theirs are, you know, because you never know with animals in the past where they came from and all that. Yeah, because I mean, I've even seen, I mean, things that are admittedly crosses, but they're so blue and beautiful that, you know, someone may attribute to a pure animal, you know, the bluer it is, the pure it is. I don't know. Sure. And then, you know, people need to remember too, that, you know, we selectively breed for color and certain traits. So over time, you know, the, the right animals fall in the right hands and blue gets bled to, bred to blue and you get more blue. Um, so that happens as well. And how many groups of cyclora do you have? And how often are you breeding? How many clusters do you get typically? Uh, I have 1.2 Cubans, 2.2 Lewis I hybrids, and 1.1 rhinos. So I get a clutch from each of the females every year. So one, two, three, four, five clutches. Which is good enough, especially for the little dinosaurs. Yeah, they're awesome. That, that gets me every time. You see the little head poking out of the egg and you're just like, this is insane. Does it cycle in Florida just naturally? Yes. I mean, it's so, it's so close to their native range, most of them. These are all island iguanas and we're so far south that it's, pretty spot on to what they would experience in their native range, you know, and then you just try to replicate, you know, their natural environment in whatever enclosure you put them in. 
And are diets similar across all the species? Uh, from what I've seen, yes. Uh, like a lot of reptiles, they're very opportunistic. Uh, you know, you have in the captive world, you have people that do too much of one thing. Again, extremists. You know, you have somebody that grew a rhino iguana just feeding it rats, and it's like, okay, I don't agree with that. But you know, stomach contents of wild rhino iguanas shows that they eat. You know birds that they've eaten crabs that they've eaten you know small mammals and stuff like that they're very opportunistic i've seen mine eat black racers here in the wild i've seen my sailfin dragons with uh juvenile jesus lizard hanging out of their mouth and you know introduced invasive jesus lizard hanging out of their mouth uh i've seen all this talk about cuban tree frogs and how they're so toxic and nothing will eat them and I've seen my sailfins with Cuban tree frogs hanging out of their mouth. My Australian water dragons with Cuban tree frogs hanging out of their mouth. So crazy stuff happens, especially when you let wild Florida wildlife. Just be nature. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you you you're not going to keep Florida out of your, your enclosure no matter how hard you try. Right. You make those holes a little bigger and you get all sorts of creatures getting in there. And is that, is that something you worry about, parasites from, from the wild? Yeah, parasites are, are always a worry, uh, you know, especially with, like, ones that you can see. I mean, you know, external parasites. Like, you have wild iguanas come around, and they bring mites and all that stuff, and who knows what's going on inside of them. You know, you obviously have to do a, a, a fecal and a float and all that stuff and find out exactly what's going on. Uh, is it a worry? Yes. Does it keep me, you know, awake at night? Not really. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, survivors, really hardy animals. You know, they, they deal with all sorts of stuff. I've seen them with, you know, missing legs and missing tails, and they're fine. So, Yeah, that's like the folks who cry that your bearded dragon's on sand or something. You're like, how did this thing ever survive in the fucking wild if I can't keep it on, you know, this substrate or that substrate? Or right. People are mistake them for being so fragile. Sure, sure. And... I guess with iguana specifically, you know, I've seen green iguana population. Well, I've seen all three of the introduced iguana species in Florida, but specifically talking about green iguanas, I've seen them adapt to so many different environments. I mean, uh, so when we talk about diet, you know, variety is always going to be a good idea. It's always great to give them a variety, but I've seen iguana populations thrive when all they're eating is grass. Like you can see them. There's nothing in the area. They cut the grass and the iguanas will actually move their heads to the side to kind of graze on the grass like that. And then you see iguanas in other areas, you know, in, in wealthy neighborhoods in South Florida that they're eating all these ornamental plants and they're these big, gorgeous, you know, borderline obese iguanas that are just gorging themselves. And they may get bigger, uh, you know, without doing a, a proper study. You don't know if that's because of the food. You don't know if that's because of the genetics of that whatever population that came from. But what I can tell you is that green iguana specifically and a lot of iguanas in general can adapt to a lot of different diets. Yeah, I mean, you guys have spiny tails as well. Yep, we have both similis and pectinata, and they do great. And they have even a, a, a more varied diet. They'll eat everything that green iguanas eat and more. Uh, again, they'll eat the crabs, they'll eat the mammals, the birds. They're very opportunistic. Um, they'll eat all sorts of stuff. Yeah, those are little savage lizards. Mine used to, I used to have a melanosterna, the, the Honduran black-chested. Sure. Um, 
that fucking thing. If if I took like a pinky, like if I had something that a snake wouldn't eat, it would freak out. Yep. And like it didn't give two shits about like the iguana chow and the lettuce and everything <laughs> that I put in there. But if it was some creature that was alive, it would be Psychotic. psycho. Yeah. Um, I feel the need to explain for anyone who doesn't know about creatures with legs that Mike did say Jesus lizard and James Lewis explained it to us. It's because they can run on water. Basculus is Basculus. what you meant, right? Basilisk, yes, yes. Yeah. The world that doesn't know. I mean, I may be the only one that doesn't know. But yeah, you may be. Well, Tom, <laughs> to be Tom, Tom too said he doesn't know either. So us two can be the ones who I, never I heard. Maybe like an old lizard. school way to to explain it because I remember like that was always such a basilisk were like popular in the hobby. Like when I was when I went to White Plains in like the late nineties, early two thousands, when I was a kid, like basilisks were like very the very thing. them and like. Uh, the water dragons and stuff like that. And people would always talk about them walking on water. So it was like a very popular, uh, you know, everyone pretty much knew about it, but yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean to throw something out there that people didn't know about, but yeah, Jesus are everywhere down here. We have brown basilisks. There's all different types of basilisks, but we have brown basilisks all over the place. Pretty much any freshwater system in South Florida has brown basilisks. Such a cool animal. That's such a wrong place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pump up Mike's ego right now. Why? Oh, God. Should I do it? Someone's hating on you in the chat. <laughs> well. Uh-oh. Someone said, so I just turned in and I'm not sure, or tuned in, and I'm not sure what they're talking about, but this guy is super hot. I'm flattered. So if you guys love from this, uh, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, cyclora what are we talking about uh, dolphin lizard that's something that are that people don't commonly keep in captivity at least i don't see a lot these days it's a heavily imported lizard uh but people never really know what they're getting into everybody sees the picture they want a sailfin but they don't realize that that little import lizard they're buying is usually not going to turn into that beautiful lizard that they got what i always tell people is that I wouldn't class. I wouldn't recommend them for beginners, but if you put a little bit of work in, they're not hard to raise either. Um, it's just one of those things that if you put the time in to build the right enclosure to set up the right enclosure, they'll do just fine. But if you try to treat them again, you know, just stick them in an aquarium like everything else on on sand or something, you know, and not give them the needs that that species needs, it's not going to do well. They're going to rub their faces. They're going to, you know, you have to know how to set them up. I was I was gonna ask you that because like even the ones I've seen in zoos always have like smashed faces and stuff like that. What is that from? They're just flighty lizards, just like basilisks are. You see a lot of basilisks with you know nose rub. Uh, you have to put them in cages with visual barriers. With you know you, you can't let them grate their noses off. A lot of these lizards, these flighty lizards, if they can see through it, they think that they can get through it. So they get spooked. And they'll just try everything, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen it, but they'll just keep trying to kind of peck their snout against, you know, the screen thinking they're getting out, but all they're doing is grating their face. So when you're dealing with flighty lizards like that, you have to put like a wall up basically so that they don't smash their faces. Uh, and then they realize, hey, I can't run through that. It's a solid wall. <laughs> right. Yes, not as smart not, as Crocs. Yes. <laughs> Terrible display animal, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> 
but they do calm down like my big male i don't ever really handle them you know a lot of my big animals i pet them and, and hand feed them but i don't usually like take them out and throw them on my shoulders and stuff i kind of let them do their thing out there and he'll let me pet him on the head and you know uh it's kind of a i see pictures all the time overseas you know i think it's in like indonesia where a lot of them come from and it's kind of like a trend these guys will have them all over them and all on their shoulders and their arms the pictures are really cool and they're gorgeous animals um and scott corning i don't know if you guys have heard of him but he's kind of the pioneer for self and dragons and he's the one that got me into them and i learned a tremendous amount from him but again it's just another example of do your research if you do your research you're going to set yourself up for success and what are they i'm not familiar at all as far as diet goes what do they eat omnivores uh so i feed them a lot of the same fruits and veggies as the iguanas i even got them to eat some of the pelleted diets as well you know mixing with the food and then insects you know spiders that i have them with big in a big screen cage and like i said i've seen cuban tree frogs coming out of their mouth i've seen jesus lizards coming out they eat bat i'm oh, sorry basilisk i've seen basilisk coming out of their mouth I've i know seen- now now you can <laughs> name uh, I've seen um with anoles coming out of their mouth. You know, I've seen them where like I'm in the enclosure with them, and I'll be like, let's say digging for eggs. And this is another really cool thing that happens when you're in Florida. You dig for eggs, and when you're digging, like there'll be like little roaches or like little bugs that are in the actual nesting substrate. Yeah, li- that's so cool. It is cool when you're digging them up, and the lizards are waiting for you to dig them up because they know that there's going to be food there. And then all of a sudden they're coming down and just picking around your hands while you're digging. And they know, they know it's coming. You know, once they see it once or once or twice, they're not dumb. They know that those extra treats are coming and they're free treats. They're nature treats. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's cool. Again, different definitions of cool. (laughs) And have you been, are you typically successful with them as far as breeding goes? Sail fins, me and the sailfins have had a lot of troubles. Um, I keep them alive and happy and healthy, and I have produced babies. Uh, but I have ha- just had the issue where they go full term and they just don't make it out of the egg. And I've had that just way more than I've seen with any other animal. I've played with humidity. I've played with diet. I've played with all sorts of stuff that you know anyone would kind of suggest at first or think of at first. And I haven't quite figured it out and I've spoken to a lot of people that are really successful with them and it's just tough. I, I haven't perfected it by any means, but I do produce them. Is that, is that something that they're kind of notorious for? Uh, there's not very many people breeding them. So there's the Philippine uh, water dragon that are no longer imported. I'm sorry, water dragon, selfin dragon, Philippine selfin dragon uh, that a lot of people have the blue ones. Um, and, those ones are bred a lot more frequently than the ones that I have are bred. And the ones I have are the Amboinensis or the Indo-Giant Selfin Dragons. And they're, the males are basically black with a gold middle patch. And um, there's only, you know, one or two people that really produce them. And I would say a handful of people that pr- have produced them ever. Uh, and it's just tough. It's tough. I don't, I don't know. I've spoken. I feel like I've spoken to them all. And, you know, heard what everybody has to say, but nature's going to be nature. You know, there's always challenges and I obviously want to hatch out as many as I can, but I haven't figured it out for myself. Are there people, the people who you spoke to, are there people that are keeping them inside 
Yes. That's, no? the, that's the main thing is that most people keep them inside. Actually, before I put them outside, everybody told me I was crazy. Um, and I played with enclosure design and went back and forth. And I think the sail fins are as healthy as they possibly can be. Uh, another thing that's really cool about sail fins, again, this isn't anything that's like scientifically proven, but they tend to get blue eyes when you put them outside. So a lot of people see pictures of my male Spike. He's kind of like Instagram famous. Everybody loves Spike. Whenever I post a picture, Spike blows up. But he's gorgeous and he has these blue eyes. And then most people that have them, they don't, theirs don't have blue eyes and they're inside. And the few people that I've spoken to that know what I'm talking about, they're, they're like, oh, for whatever reason, when you put them outside, their eyes turn blue. So he has these beautiful blue eyes um, that's apparently because he's outside. I raised him inside when he was little, and then I put him, once he was about halfway grown, I put him outside. That's crazy. Yeah. So what made you, I mean. Decide to do it outside. Yeah. Because there's just natural unfiltered sunlight, you can't beat it. Uh, a natural um, cycle, you just can't beat it. You don't have to regulate it. You don't have to, you know, have an artificial system. And my thought, even with animals that naturally have to kind of brumate, I try to get them on a Florida cycle before anything. I mean, look at the tegus. Talking about an animal that, that normally, you know, needs to be much colder, but clearly they found a way. And I like to think in general, nature finds a way, you know, you put them in the best possible situation. If you can tweak it a little bit to have them live a more natural life in South Florida versus wherever they come from, then you try to tweak it, get them on that cycle. Um, but obviously I'm not taking, you know, desert species and throwing them out in the humidity of Florida. You know, there's, there's levels to it. Uh, so just play with it and use good judgment and I guess an educated hypothesis and then try it and if it doesn't work. You know, you learn and you go on with your life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so, so outlandish to someone who doesn't live in Florida, but we wish we all could just do that. <laughs> I think, I think it's so interesting. I mean, seeing like in the snake world, no one really has the balls to do that even in Florida. So I, I think it's interesting to watch people like obviously Crutchfield keeps a bunch of his stuff outside and mm. it's interesting to, to see like something like a retic or something, you know, living in an outdoor That's enclosure fine. and sure. I mean, with snakes specifically, there's been so much success keeping them inside. So most people don't even want to try with the outside. But I mean, I guess in a perfect world, I, as I get older and as I experience more of this, I mean, my goal, you know, if someone gave me a million dollars today would be like, I want to make the biggest, baddest enclosures for my animals. And it's like, that's not a reality for most people. You give them the best situation that you can give them. But you also learn from those situations. Oh, this animal does this. Oh, it needs more of this. And then as it grows, you can build it an enclosure that's more for its needs. Yeah. I think that's something that the hobby right now is struggling with. There's camps all over with all different ideas. I mean, there's even monitor guys that are pro UV, some that don't use it, stuff like that. So, I mean, obviously you guys are benefiting from stuff like, you know, sunlight, it seems like you guys are benefiting from that, but not everyone agrees on that stuff. So where do you, where do you land as far as, 
I mean, in quotations, like enrichment in enclosures and stuff like that? Um, in general, the more the merrier. Again, in a perfect world, you want to give them the world, really. Um, but then it comes down to the intelligence of the animals and what you're really working with. You know, know, know your species, know, know your environment. Um, you know, not everything needs tremendous enrichment. And, and some animals, as a matter of fact, don't like their habitat to be messed with. You know, there's some animals that you move the furniture around and it's good. It's mental stimulation, all that. And there's other animals that they get used to their territory. And if you move around their stuff, you're going to stress them out. Uh, so again, it's, it's knowing your animals and the answers aren't always going to be online. The answers aren't always going to be in care sheets or reptile groups. It comes down to watching your animals. And again, that passion that we, we keep bringing up, you know, love what you do and study what you do and improve it any way you can. Do you, do you think that there's something to say about like, obviously when we're keeping inside, we always have to interact with our animals much more closely. We need to clean them every week, which means that we need to pick them up, put them somewhere else and clean them. Like, Somewhere in Florida, the animals that are going to interact with you are going to interact with you. But if you have a walk-in cage, the ones that don't want to mess with you can get away from you also. And you don't have to necessarily be constantly cleaning an enclosure because obviously it's it's outside. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, they can get away from you. And when you keep keep the animals, you kind of know what to expect. I have animals that are more flighty. I have animals that started off flighty and they're no longer flighty. Um, and then it's a species thing and then it's also an individual thing. You learn about the species and then you learn about when you have more than one of that species, you learn about their individual kind of personalities. And, you know, I have I have one iguana that's the same species as another that may like this type of food and the other one doesn't. And just like us, they have preferences. Yeah. Yeah, I think anyone with a, with a group of animals will tell you that they're not all the same. Yeah, but. even even the most simple creatures, even you know your ball python, you know one may They're have different. preferences. And sure, um, is there anything that you don't keep at the moment, but you would like to keep in the future? Well, it's an interesting question, and I guess I'll just go along with kind of what I am in the process of doing, and that's. Uh, getting my permits to be able to have crocodilians. Um, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I was going to ask. I knew it. And um, it's more so for education. Uh, In Florida, we have a four-foot rule. You can get a permit uh, if you don't have the acreage requirements um, to get a crocodilian under four feet. There's a class structure, so you can have alligators and caiman under class two, and then you can have basically all all the large crocodiles with a class one. Um, and there's an under four foot rule where basically you can keep them up to four feet without having those acreage requirements. My goal is I don't want a disposable pet. I want to be able to keep it its whole life. Uh, I want to be able to have an alligator, a caiman and a crocodile because when I give these talks, I want to be able to use the real animals that I study, that I work with. Um, and then I don't want them to be disposable. I, I want them to be with me forever, you know? So that's my goal. We'll, we'll we'll see where we get, but uh, that's what I'm shooting for. It you seems have, like that would be um, beneficial because obviously you can build a relationship, you can train that animal, and you can use them for education. So 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, yeah, my thing is I get the four foot rule because you want to make sure people are qualified to be able to keep a large crocodilian. But on the other side of things, I hate the idea of, you know, getting rid of them. You build a relationship with an animal and then you just dump it because it's four feet. I don't think that's fair to the animal. So, and I say dump it, I don't mean release it or anything. I just mean right. sending it to another uh, institution or person or what have you, permitted individual. You so, would think you're you're qualified to be permitted. <laughs> I'm working on it. The paperwork isn't easy. Kind of land currently. Working on it. Working on it. It's all in the works. We'll see what happens. Because okay. it seems like we've been getting we've been getting Florida people, and this whole thing is like the acreage rules and stuff like that. It's yeah. They they make it really hard these days. Um, and for any, I mean, if anything, I want my permits just for the freedom. You know, there's. I have no interest in keeping venomous. I love venomous. I think they're awesome, but I want my venomous permits so that I can transport them so that I can, you know, move them legally. If I ever get pulled over, I have paperwork, you know, saying that I am qualified to do this. Um, even though I, you know, I'll get inspected and I won't have anything, you know, that's fine with me. I still, I still want the freedom to be able to work with them because I do work with them on a daily basis. Right. Right. It felt like you had a question. Um, I cut you off a few times. No, it's okay. That's my question. No, my question was like, does he have the acreage? Well, and I wanted to know, it seems like so many people's eventual plans are having a facility open to the public with your crock license, everything like that. Is that something that you would want in your future? No, (laughs) definitely not. Uh, I like dealing with the public when I can, I guess, what's the best way that I can put this? Um, it used to be a thought in my head, like, this is what I want. Um, I have a lot of friends that do that, and it's very necessary. I just don't think that that's what I would want to do. Um, I, I like keeping my life kind of private in regards to animal keeping and stuff like that. And, yeah, there's social media platforms, and, yeah, you know, I'm doing this talk, and I'm talking about my animals and all that stuff. Uh, but, you know... Not everybody needs to come over and see everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And six-year-olds and children. Right. Yeah. I don't need little kids rubbing their boogers all over my cages and stuff. Gotcha. Respect that. Nah, but I love the kids. Mike loves the kids. Like I said, I was a teacher and all that. But, uh, yeah, it's just not for me. I mean, I it's awesome. Like I said, I have plenty of friends that do do that and uh, – it's very necessary for those establishments to exist. It's just not a goal of mine. It just, it just seems like you already have a good thing going. Why would you complicate it? Yeah. You work with Crocs all day. And that's the thing is complicating it. I mean, very much with what I do, I always pitch, you know, as you know, with what we've spoken about, you have to be a hustler. You have to go after what you want and things get complicated. You know, things get very complicated and you end up juggling a million things. And then it comes down to a self-assessment of, am I doing the right thing for myself? Am I doing the right thing for these animals? Am I doing the right thing for my life? And I think every keeper comes to that kind of realization where they need to, they need to reflect and see what am I doing? You know, or am I doing it for myself? Am I doing it for the animals? Are are the animals in the best situation? Um, And then just, owning it you know you got to do it 
there's no reason, you know, I, I've, I've witnessed some people with collections where it's like they have some of the rarest stuff and they never want to let it go to anybody. And it's like, okay, but you have too many animals and the animals are eventually suffering. It's like, why not, you know, sell some off, give some away, something like that. And some people just can't let go. And I think when your collection gets very large, you need to kind of have these reality checks where it's like, okay, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing it? What's the best situation? And I can speak to that personally. The, the collection size only goes up. It never really goes <laughs> down. So like in 10 years, I don't want to have, uh, we kind of cut ourselves off this year, but you know, it's hard to, to say no. And it just yeah. gradually builds year after year. But yeah. uh, James Lewis in the chat is a teacher. She is a teacher. So people want to He's know, not a teacher anymore. what did you teach? James Lewis isn't a teacher anymore? No, remember he got a new job. Oh, so Mike, what, what kind of teacher were you? I was a science lab teacher with a really unique situation. I worked, I was the curator of a private animal collection of over 800 animals at a zoo. I'm sorry, at a school. Um, and I was able to teach all my classes outside. Wait, Holy what school shit. has 800 animals? Damn, Florida. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was basically um, somebody that had uh, a tremendous interest in birds specifically. But basically, I started working there, and we kind of diversified the collection. We had sloths. We had monkeys. We had, uh, you know, iguanas. We had all sorts of stuff. And it w- I would bring my classes out. I taught almost every single one of my classes outside. We keep on wondering why we moved to Pennsylvania instead of moving to Florida no. when we moved from Texas. No. Oh, Texas? You left Texas? There's no rules in Texas. There's no rules in Pennsylvania either, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, you know, that's why we went, honestly, that's why we went from Texas to Pennsylvania. It's so. not the main reason. It's not the main reason. I only, I don't keep. But it's not the shit, main but. reason. <laughs> But it's a good scene for reptiles, basically. Texas, Pennsylvania, this area, Florida, obviously. Cool. Wow. Okay. Florida has some crazy schools. (laughs) Um, But, Mike, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way they could contact you? Uh, Probably Instagram, at MikeLoretReptiles. I'm on it all the time. It's a blessing and a curse. Mike, double L-O-R-E-T, correct? Reptiles. That's it, reptiles. Um, I try to answer everybody on there. Um, I guess that's the best best way to contact me. So. Awesome. And is there any final parting words you have? I appreciate you guys having me. I have love for snakes, I promise. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's nice to, to cover different things like we've never gone this close to in depth on american crocodiles in particular so it was awesome talking with someone who sees them in the field so often it works with them so it was awesome well thanks for having me i appreciate it and it was a lot of fun thank you for us poor city pythons oh i feel like you were like pointing to me to say it and then you said it poor city pythons on instagram poor city pythons on youtube from the ground up podcast thank you guys so much for listening thank you to all of our patreon folks for hosting this glorious event that we get to talk to cool people and meet cool people through because that's basically what we do this whole podcast is about talking to cool people and introducing you guys to cool people even if 
you guys are going to see that we are like switching it up a shit ton. Obviously, we had a so you're saying we're switching on. it up. We're not having cool people. No, <laughs> no, no, no. We, like I'm saying we had a falconer on last week. This week we have Crocs and, you know, we're trying to go outside the realm of just snakes and private keeping. So I thank you for all you guys who have you know, stayed interested in all these different And topics. our next one will be on Saturday. So we talked oh, about like snap. we had gotten back to Mondays, but our next one will be on Saturday. But UK it's folks. because it's a, yeah, it's a UK person. So definitely get excited. And for that. I trust that he's going to be here. So it's going to be Graham Baddison. Oh, okay, <laughs> we'll see. All right. So we will see you guys next week. Thank you guys all not for listening. Not next week. We just said it's Saturday. Saturday. Just kidding. <laughs> that is, yeah. That's not next week. <laughs> what are you talking about? Technicalities. Uh-huh. You're ridiculous. Way to go, man. Can end the show correctly. You Your fault. Argue with me. Always an argument on this. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Goodbye, y'all. Thank you, guys.